If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Ernst van Zyl is head of public relations at Afri Forum and a documentary filmmaker. He joins us today to follow up on some of the issues that were raised by an interview that Paul Brennan did in September on his breakfast show with Renee Valmaviver, who is from Afri Forum Youth. She spoke about the racism that she's experienced her whole life and painted quite a bleak picture of a country in freefall with rampant crime, anti-white rhetoric, and a failing power grid with high levels of corruption. Uh, welcome to the show, Ernst. Good morning, Dewa. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your documentary and filmmaking work and what you do at Afri Forum? Right. So the first thing of those two is that I started working at AfriForum. So AfriForum is the largest civil rights organization in the Southern Hemisphere based on the, the metric of membership. So it's not just a membership where you like a Facebook page or you fill in a form and then you become a member. You have to be a donating member to register as a member. So we have at the moment 315,000 donating members and we do a wide range of stuff and we can get into all the, the actions that we do, the state proof solutions that we do. But AfriForum specifically focuses on, has a particular focus on the, the rights of minority groups in South Africa, in particular the Afrikaner minority group and uh, the Afrikaans language speaking minority group, but then also a lot of civil rights cases and um, actions that benefit the, the wider society as well. That leads me to my documentary. So my documentary is pretty much an outline of exactly what not just AfriForum is trying to achieve, but the broader solidarity movement that AfriForum forms part of. And what we are trying to achieve is the establishment and pioneering of what we call state-proof solutions. So that's solutions to problems that you face in a situation where the state is deteriorating in regards to its capacity, uh, sometimes is even outright antagonistic towards you. How do you react in that situation? How do you respond? And how do you actually not just survive, but thrive in that situation? Hopefully that's what we can talk about here today. I know a lot of people always focus on the unemployment rate, the crime statistics. There's a lot of stuff wrong in South Africa, but there's also a lot of pioneering work going on. And I hope we can, um, this to both sides of the, the spectrum, the, the bad and the good. Yes, I was hoping we could shift a little bit from, from one to the other. We could start off a little bit with the negatives that people are familiar mm -hmm. with and that they hear about, and then to go into the positive solutions that you guys are working on. So one of the things that, that people in New Zealand seem to be quite familiar with are the issues of farm murders being common, other crime being rampant, and of course, energy blackouts as well. I don't know if that's still ongoing, but that was a big issue last year, rolling blackouts that you suffered uh, with the energy grid failing. Are, are these problems all getting worse since September or have, have things improved a little bit early this year? Most of the problems that South Africa faces are either in a state of continuing or persisting or getting worse. So let's start off with the most famous problem, I think, when it comes to South Africa, when you're an outsider looking in, and that's the, the load shedding. Now, that's just a euphemism for rolling blackouts. To give you some perspective on the scope of the issue, you asked, is it still going on? So it might have been in the international news quite a bit last year, but it's been going on since 2007. 
So I think if I remember correctly, between 2007 and now, it's just been, I think there's been two years that I remember that didn't have rolling blackouts, 2015 and no, 2016 and 2017. Uh, somewhere in that range is about two years where we didn't have, and then it just came back. So we've had approximately between about 17 years of rolling blackouts and the government is just completely unable or unwilling to, to fix the problem. When it comes to farm murders and crime, absolutely both are serious issues. And I think this is where the nuance comes in. A lot of people, uh, when they hear about, for example, the scourge of farm murders in South Africa, they either maliciously or just naively brush it off as this is just an extension of the country's crime problem. But then when you start looking into the factors that make this crime unique, you start realizing but this is not just some garden variety robberies gone wrong. So, yes, let's start off with the crime rate. In South Africa, the murder rate is not improving. I think there was last year, if I remember correctly, the statistics showed that the murder rate increased once again. I can't remember exactly how many murders there are per year, but there's between 55 and 70 a day. When it comes to farm murders, the number is much lower. I think my organization, AfriForum, is going to be publishing the latest farm murder statistics in just a few weeks for 2023, the entire year of 2023. But the last annual statistic that we have for an entire year, so 2022, we have uh, an annual statistic there for the entire year, which means we've been able to document uh, the the farm murders for entire year there. Uh, we're, um, We're going to be publishing the 2023 statistics later in a few weeks, I think. So in 2022, there were 50 farm murders in South Africa. Now, like I said, when you are not looking at this issue through the the nuanced lens that it deserves, you say, well, there's about 70 murders a day in South Africa. This is just 50 murders a year. Now, take this scenario and do a little thought experiment. What would happen if it wasn't 50 farmers that were murdered, but 50 journalists? What if the statistic was 50 judges or 50 lawyers or 50 doctors or 50 politicians, suddenly that statistic starts becoming a lot more shocking. And you, I think anyone listening that's honestly approaching the issue knows how much of an international outcry that would re- the reaction would be. 50 politicians murdered in South Africa or 50 journalists murdered in South Africa. That would make international headlines. We would be calling it a crisis of the highest order. But when the profession is the farming profession, suddenly it's just normal crime. That's the first element of it. The second element is the fact that it's the only profession that the murder of which is actively being encouraged through chance by high-profile politicians. I can't think of any other profession that there is a chant that politicians do about murder this profession. In, in what I'm talking about in South African context specifically is the kill the boer, kill the farmer chant. That has been done by the ANC in the past, and that is currently being done by the EFF. So just for context, Boer in this sense can mean either farmer or the ethnic group, the Afrikaans, uh, Afrikaner ethnic group in South Africa. Mm-hmm. That's the, and the late, I think the biggest incident of this that was recent that the world noticed was last year when the leader of the third largest political party in South Africa, the economic freedom fighters, Julius Malema, chanted, kill the boer, kill the farmer to an audience of 90,000 supporters in the stadium that chanted with him. That's the second element to this crime phenomenon. Third element, and this is also very important, is when it comes to the nature 
of these crimes. So it's not just, oh, there was a break-in robbery, the, the car was stolen or some money was stolen or whatever. It's often the case that there's nothing stolen. People are just killed and then the attackers flee. Even in a violent country like South Africa, that is not normal fabric crimes where it's either a dispute between family members or a romance issue or something like that. But in this case, it's just strangers coming into the property, killing the farmer and his family and, and leaving and not taking anything with them. Then there's also many cases of the horrific torture that happens. Again, something that even in a violent country like South Africa, that is levels above what we see in regards to the murder rate in South Africa. It's not accompanied with this level of torture that we see in many of these far murder cases where the 80-year-old women have a, a drill drilled through their feet or a 10-year-old child is drowned in a, in a bathtub of boiling water or a 70-year-old man is beaten to death until he's unrecognizable with a lead pipe and nothing is stolen. So, like I said, unfortunately, we don't have the, the luxury when discussing these types of issues, the luxury of nuance. Sometimes it's black and white and people just want, well, is it a, the question often goes to, well, is it a genocide or not? And where if it's not a genocide, it's not a serious problem. But when you go into the nuance of the issue, you realize that this is a serious problem and it affects many people and specifically uh, people coming from farming communities. I mean, that's my case as well. I come from a farming community. I've experienced what happens to a community when a farmer is brutally murdered in that community. I've heard the voice notes being sent over WhatsApp over there was just an attack on the, the farm next door and it's people that we know. It's 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 not something that it seems that a lot of people that have lived in urban spaces their entire lives don't seem to understand the impact of that type of crime on a community. And those same people then look at organizations like AfriForum or any individual that just does awareness about this crime issue and paints them as evil, paints them as someone that's reprehensible or someone that should be condemned or someone that's a liar. It's the most disgusting thing that you can imagine we take it to another scenario imagine if you are an activist against gender-based violence and every time you try to bring awareness to this issue people just say well the majority of people that are victims of violence or murder are men therefore your issue is a non-issue or even worse if you try to bring attention to that issue people just blatantly just call you a liar without evidence to your face and call you a, a, a terrible, horrible person for daring to care about this issue so deep. These murders are absolutely horrific. Yeah, this... I've, I've seen some of the documentaries made as well in the Western world by, by visitors. Lawrence Southern famously did one, I believe, in 2019, Farmlands. And there have been several other documentaries about these farm murders, and it is truly horrific to actually see it for yourself. I can't possibly imagine what it would be like to experience it. Hmm. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, like I said, it's one of those strange cases where every other type of activism to bring awareness to societal issues or violent crime issues or certain types of crime is welcomed and celebrated. But as long as it's not the farm murder issue in South Africa, then the, the narrative changes to if you care about that issue, if you try to spread awareness about that issue or even talk about that issue, 
that somehow makes you a terrible person, that makes you a racist, that makes you a propagandist, that makes you all types of ugly words. Yeah, I can't think of another of another type of crime phenomenon where trying to bring awareness to the issue gets that type of horrific reaction. No, I, I can't imagine that in New Zealand. I don't think anybody in the audience could imagine any kind of crime that could just be uh, swept under the carpet or or downplayed like that. That's definitely uh, a very disturbing situation there. I know a lot of Afrikaners here in New Zealand, massive numbers of them have immigrated. They make up now nearly about 1.5% of our population. When you speak with them, most of them say that South Africa is is toast, basically. It's done. They're running away. Are they wrong? Or is it just a case of people being lucky to be able to get away? Well, that's one of the, the key, not key issues, but rather prickly and thorny issues within, I think, not just the Afrikaner community, but any community where a large portion of its uh, its the group has already turned into a diaspora. I mean, there's, I would go as far as this, I don't have the exact statistics, but there's probably hundreds of thousands of Afrikaners already out there that have emigrated the Afrikaner diaspora. But at the same time, like I said, it's also, again, one of those issues where it's not black and white. It's not one of those issues where you can just say, well, the people that stay are brave and the people that leave are cowardly or whatever. It's a lot more complicated than that. Whether to immigrate or to stay is a deeply personal decision to make. And I'll never condemn anyone for immigrating, for example, to New Zealand because they wanted to give their children a better future. But at the same time, that same understanding, that same when it comes to those that choose to stay in South Africa, whether uh, against all the challenges that we might face, because in the end, there's also another issue at play here. So on the one side, I actually wrote an opinion piece on this issue for the, the publication IM1776 titled the, A Time to Dig Trenches. And it's about this, where just as there are people that when they made their personal choice to immigrate had good reasons, there are also people when they made their personal choice to stay that had good reasons. One of those reasons is that if you care about Afrikaner culture and, it, and the language of Afrikaans and you want it to still exist in, in hundreds of years, it cannot survive outside of Southern Africa. Uh, unfortunately, and I don't, I've never met anyone that denies this, within one to two generations of, of Afrikaners born in a new country outside of South Africa or outside of Africa, I should rather say, that family assimilates. They keep their surname, but they don't speak Afrikaans anymore. They don't refer to themselves as Afrikaners or Boers anymore. And they don't relate to the historical stories that are tied to the Afrikaner culture. That, so if the entire... That's definitely my experience with friends that I have who are second-generation Africans. They have assimilated into, into New Zealand, like you mm. said. That seems to be the trend all across the board. And like I said, there's nothing evil uh, about giving your children better opportunities and immigrating to another country. But they also cannot be naivety or even self-deception about the fact that if all Afrikaners were to leave South Africa tomorrow, the culture would not survive. We don't have the, the cultural tools to survive as a completely diaspora people. There's no, no evidence to, the, uh, to support the idea that we can. But, and I believe there's also the case that a lot of people simply cannot leave. I think most, most that's Afrikaners also, basically do not have the means to leave the country. Is, am I right in saying that? 
that's the, the two sides of the coin. But I think the mistake would be to make the assumption that everyone that's left are the people that can and the people that stay are just the people that can't. It's often a case of not being willing to leave. I mean, there's that's my case. I mean, if I sell all my belongings and I take all my savings, I could probably emigrate. I haven't looked into the option, <laughs> but I choose to stay. And the the one of the things that my organization that I work for, AfriForum and the Solidarity Movement is aiming for is to create a, a future for Africa, a building to stay, which means that that is our mission is to build a future here in South Africa through the establishment of educational opportunities, through uh, job creation, through state-proof solutions to many of the problems that we face. And like I said, we can get into some of those details, but that's the mission is to make sure that because we know our culture and our, our people can only have a future if our future is in Southern Africa, then we have to start building and we have to start building, uh, had to start building yesterday. And if we haven't been start building yesterday, I have to start building today. And that's what we're doing. You referred to some of these aims of AfriForum, the state-proof mm. solutions and so on. Could you explain a little bit more about the main goals, the main mm. ways in which you implement these solutions? Absolutely. So, I mean, that was the, the topic of my documentary. The documentary's name is Self-Bestir. But you can find it, if you find it on YouTube, it has English subtitles. You can watch it even if you're English. But there's a, my a myriad of ways in which you can actually start fighting back against the decay around you. So let's take the best example, security. In South Africa, I think, thinking about the last, the best statistic. Uh, yeah, let me, uh, while I look for that statistic, let me tell you a bit something about, first about the the neighborhood watch initiative that we have. So we AfriForum has about 172 neighborhood watches all across the country. But you have to understand the context within which that is happening to understand why are these people in their tens of thousands organizing to keep their community safe? Don't they have a police service? So in 2023, uh, the minister of police, uh, Beke Chele, confirmed that the South African police service dropped over 6.3 million phone calls from people in need over the past three financial years. That constitutes roughly 2.1 million dropped calls per year and over 5,700 dropped calls by the police per day. In 2021, when the, the country suffered its most destructive public looting and riots since 1994, police service proved woefully unprepared and unable to contain the violence and chaos. But within that context is where we started thinking about and implementing eventually community-based solutions to this problem. You can either sit down and, and, and cry about the fact that the police aren't doing their job, or you can start thinking about a solution. And that solution is community-based security structures. So we've got over 172 neighborhood watches or farm watches or security structures all across the country already. Thousands of uh, volunteers, people don't get paid to take part in these structures. They do it because it's they feel a duty towards their community. And we have a, a growing list of successes every week. And this is the way that uh, we are making our community safe and we're expanding these, these structures as well. Another example would be uh, infrastructure. So South Africa has a massive pothole problem where every year there's thousands of new potholes all across the country in the roads. And it becomes a costly affair where if you hit a pothole with your with your tire, there's a good chance you're going to have to replace that tire. And often a lot of people don't have the budget to do that on a constant basis or even do it once a year. 
So what AfriForum did is organize communities through our branches. Uh, so we have 160 branches all across the country, organize people and say, we're going to start filling potholes. And now we, we, we've reached the point where we fill thousands of potholes every, every year. Um, another example would be, and this is the broader solidarity movement, that would be what AfriForum forms part of. But that solidarity movement has, in a context of a, a hostile environment towards the Afrikaans language on tertiary education campuses, on university campuses, we've started building our own tertiary education institutions through crowdfunding, through grassroots fundraising. So what the solidarity movement did they asked their members, they also have hundreds of thousands of members, they asked, are you willing to give 10 rand? I don't even know what that would be in your currency, but 10 rand is about 50 US cents. Are you willing to give 50 US cents every month extra towards a building fund? We're going to use this building fund to build institutions. And the member said yes. And then they used this building fund to build Soltec, which is a technical college, an Afrikaans private technical college that had, uh, they finished it in 2020 under budget and uh, under, uh, in, in earlier time than expected. And today it caters to thousands of Afrikaans students that are denied that opportunity through the onslaught against the Afrikaans language and education from the government side. But then the Afrikaner community just said, well, then we're just going to build our own education institutions of our own money. And uh, we don't need the, the government to build it for us or to preserve our language. We'll, we'll do it ourselves. And if you have just tuned in to the show, uh, we are interviewing Ernst von Zeil, who's the head of public relations at AfriForum. And he's been talking to us about some of the problems that Afrikaners in South Africa face. And more importantly, the solutions that they are working on, which he refers to as state-proof solutions. In addition to the work that, that you guys are doing, a lot of, I guess, what we hear about here in New Zealand are basically uh, independence movements almost. People who are listening will, for instance, be familiar with Orania or at least have heard of it, perhaps even a, a Cape independence movement. Is that part of the work that you do or is your work very much focused within the existing government structure? So when it comes to the, the various uh, independence movements, and some of them, I think, are just online and some of them actually have done some stuff in real life. Orania, for example, is a, a project that uh, Solidarity Movement and through my work, I've worked a lot with uh, with them. I've visited it more than times that I can count. Amazing example of what you can do. Basically, an Afrikaner community that was created to preserve the Afrikaner language with their own labor, their own money, and their, their own vision. Um, I think the town is about 3,000 people at this moment, but it's growing rapidly. Its economy grows by about 10% per year, if I remember correctly, and their population grows at a similar rate. The other independence movements like Cape Independence, no affiliation between the my work and their work. I do like bold ideas, so I keep a close eye on what they're doing, but I have no, I have no involvement in uh, there, and I'm, 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 I'll see what, what happens with their project and with what it they is, try to achieve there. Is part of this also a distinction a little bit between those who have English heritage and those who have a more Dutch and continental European heritage, mm. or is it, is it that you are very much in this together? Hmm. Well, uh, I think if you look at organizations on a on a case by case level, AfriForum, for example, is a almost hundred percent Afrikaner organization. We have many supporters, English supporters, even supporters from other communities and peoples, but it's particularly an organization that has a 
undeniable Christian identity and Afrikaner identity and Afrikaans speaking identity. And without that identity that anchors the organization, we would not be able to achieve what we're doing. You need that cultural energy. You can't just be a cosmopolitan movement of, no, we're just everything for everybody. Then you're going to be nothing for nobody. So you need that energy. And when it comes to the Cape Independence Movement, I don't know what their statistics particularly are. I haven't seen the statistics. I'm only speaking from what I can see in reality. When it comes to Urania, that's just a 100% Afrikaner town. Uh, Misconception, it's not a white town. You can't just go live there if you're white. You have to be an Afrikaner. You have to buy into the culture. You have to be part of that community. You can't just go live there, show your skin color, and then you can live (laughs) That, but that's it's right. also even, even I, you know, I've got my name. I'm I'm from the Netherlands, but I wouldn't be able to move there because obviously I don't I don't speak Afrikaans. Yeah. I'm not part of but, Afrikaans culture. <laughs> but two things, yeah, exactly. But two things. Firstly, it's not closed to the public. It's not surrounded by a wall, so anyone can visit. Anyone can drive through the town. Anyone can go eat in the restaurants. They go go on vacation. They nobody is excluded from visiting. But also, secondly. Nobody is denied the opportunity to assimilate. So I know, for example, there are many Europeans that have gone to live there that are not Afrikaners, but they've assimilated into the Afrikaner culture. They learned the language, they took on all the traditions and the culture, and now they are part of the community a few years later. So it's not a case of you have to be genetically tied to a line of Afrikaners that have lived in South Africa for so many years. It's rather, are you willing to slot into this community and be a productive part of it? And also, are you willing to take on the Afrikaner identity and all the traditions and uh, symbols and everything that comes with it? That's the test. So yeah, there's many of these these projects going on. You said they... uh, you you implied almost uh, we keep our actions to the more the political side, but rather it's on the community side. There's a very big distinction between our organizations, Afri Forum Solidarity and, and political parties. We are, we're far from political parties. We don't take part. We're not on the ballot in, in an election. People can't vote for us. We, we'd rather be doing things on the ground, building, creating, establishing, digging trenches rather than just asking people to vote for us in an election. But that doesn't mean there aren't political parties out there that can create political room that can help us achieve a lot of these things fast. And with those political parties, we'll work with and uh, we'll even not discourage our members from not vote to not vote for those parties. But that's the, the test. If you are deciding which political party to vote for, in South Africa at least, you should ask the question, is that political party giving my community more room to take up more responsibilities or is it wanting to centralize more power in a in a decaying and corrupt state. And is the the work that you do, this resilient approach, is this applicable to everyone uh, overseas groups as well? For instance, we have a an ethnic minority in New Zealand, the native people, the Maori, they are very interested in their identity and, and maintaining their culture. But this seems to be a bit more of a focus from them on waiting for the government saying, oh, the government needs to provide this for us. You've created a very much an approach that says we don't need the government, right? We can, you know, obviously you work within a democratic system, but you want to be, Mm. as you say, resilient. You want to be state proof. And is that something that anyone, Mm. any ethnic group anywhere around the world could, could really study what you're doing and pick that up for themselves? 
Absolutely. Any, any community that's being let down by the government and often even let down is a soft way of putting it. Even any community that's being antagonized by their government or the, this model can work for them. You're going to have to adapt it a little bit to your own personal context, but there's a lot of key lessons within it that I think are broadly applicable. When it comes to specifically waiting on the government, I mean, that's that's what Afrikaners did for a long while. They were, they were completely government dependent. And then at some point, the Afrikaner community just realized that the government doesn't care. And secondly, is often openly hostile towards our communities and our language and our culture. We're going to either continue this insane strategy of just trying to pressure the government and waiting, or we can actually just start doing more. That doesn't mean that you should start breaking the law. It doesn't mean you should paint a target on your back and and make and ensure that you all end up in jail. That's not productive either. So you stay within the confines of the law, but there's a lot that can be done, especially in a country like South Africa, where even if the government were to enact some destructive piece of legislation, the the bright side of a decaying state is the fact that the state's capacity to enact stupid or evil laws becomes less and less by the year. So you take, for example, the COVID regulations. If you compare Australia to South Africa, it's night and day. It's a competent government versus an incompetent one. So the risk of an incompetent government is that it has incompetent and stupid and destructive ideas. The risk of a, but the the benefit is that they often don't have the capacity to make those ideas reality. The danger of a competent government is when a bad idea gets into the heads of that competent government, they can enact it very effectively and very efficiently. So how do you prepare for what might be possible social collapse over a very long period of time, very slow? I think people familiar maybe with entertainment and movies and books and so on that show social collapse happening very, very quickly. But in your case, it seems that you're very much in in a freefall state over a very long period of time. Is there a risk that people just get used to things being bad? Or is it actually, I guess, the slow decline useful for you guys and how you build uh, solutions? Hmm. Well, I think firstly, people need to be realistic about the nature of collapse. So a lot of people, I think, think about collapse as just more of like a bomb going off, but it's a lot less like a bomb going off and much more like just a very, very, very slow motion car crash where you can see the collapse happening very slowly around you, but it's not sudden. It's not immediately. It's very, very slow. The benefit of that is you can actually start adapting to it and you can start responding to it effectively. So in South Africa's case, I don't see a total collapse on the horizon. I see a lot of things getting worse. I see a lot of government capacity continuing to decay. I see corruption becoming worse. I don't think there's any silver lining in regards to that the government is going to sort itself out very soon. But at the same time, I see communities very actively responding to that decay very effectively. So just one example, when it comes to making yourself state proof. The best example of that is again in the security department. So when it comes to these neighborhood watches and security structures that are being established, it means you are making yourself less of a soft target for crime. And it also means that you are much more prepared for any type of uh, situation security-wise that could happen in the future that you might not have predicted or might not be have been ready for, for otherwise. Another example is energy. So we mentioned earlier how the in the South, in South Africa's case, we've got these rolling blackouts. But 
we've seen a, a counter reaction to that from the private sector. So the South African energy expert, Anton Eberhardt, crunched the, the state power utility ESCOM's data and found that South Africa has installed private rooftop solar PV capacity, uh, which increased from 983 megawatts in March 2022 to 4,412 megawatts in 2023. So for comparison, the total output of South Africa's only nuclear power station, Kuberg, is 1,940 megawatts. So citizens have therefore installed about two nuclear power stations worth of private rooftop solar so far amid this this government-induced energy crisis. The biggest lesson that you can learn from South Africa is the fact that you don't have to just passively sit by as society becomes worse around you. It's the the story of the Titanic. Are you going to sit on your ass and uh, complain about the Titanic starting to sink and say, well, this is not fair. I paid for a ticket. I paid for a safe trip. This is not fair. And you sit there and cross your arms and scream. Or are you going to start building life rafts and start thinking of a plan and thinking, how am, am I going to save as many people as possible? And in the South African case, it's it's a bit less bleak because you're not just building life rafts. You're building, initially you're building life rafts, but eventually you're going to be sitting with your own independent ship. When you talk about this independent ship, do you see a future where there's a united South Africa, everything is peaceful or you know, some kind of political solution emerges, or or is it very much a fracturing, a breakup that you see in the future? Well, I, I've heard that uh, many people say it's uh, it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. But when it comes to South Africa, I, I'll go out on a limb and uh, indulge a little bit in prediction. And what I do see happening is a decentralized South Africa, maybe not a break up in regards to becoming different little separate nations. That's possible. But I mean, again, there's so many variables. What I think is more likely and definitely a a bigger certainty is a more decentralization where the government keeps losing power, keeps losing administrative control over the vast territory. I mean, South Africa is massive. It's you just need to Google a South African map overlay Europe and you see it's it's basically the size of Europe minus, I think, Spain, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and some other some other countries. But it's a massive country. I think there's so many countries that can fit into it. But anyway, it's this massive country that needs to be administered and the government just can't do it. So what's happening now is just that decay. And I think that decay is going to continue but it's going to be responded to. So the decay is not going to just be the only force. Order is going to arise within the vacuum. Power and nature, if that power vacuum is not filled by criminal elements, it's going to be filled by communities. And I'm on the side of the communities. I'm building, me and my colleagues and our allies are building as fast as possible to make sure that power vacuum is filled by communities and not by criminal elements. So I think that's that's the most concrete prediction I can make. I can't tell you, well, the country's going to break up along these lines and this is how it's going to happen. What I can say with certainty is South Africa's future currently looks set to be a decentralized one. Mm -hmm. When I started looking into South Africa many years ago now, I I first saw all of these horrible things happening, the country falling apart. But as I've followed it over the years, I have started to see the work that you've been doing, the work that people like you have been doing. And from the outside, I can see that you do have reason to be optimistic because the work that you are doing is a really good work and it's making a real difference for your people. So 
I hope you take the encouragement as well from those of us who are wishing you well from the outside. And there's not much we can do to help you except you know, shine light on, on the problems you face. But it is inspirational to see the solutions that you're working on. Well, thank you very much. But also to add to that, to add actually some substance as well to to what you're saying there, we did internal polling with our membership. So we've got thousands of members. So we did polling and we asked them many questions. One of them was, how optimistic are you about the future of X? So we not X social media platform mm-hmm. about certain continents or countries. So first we asked them, how positive are you about the future of Europe, about America, about South Africa? But South Africa in the sense of not the country itself, but the communities within it, that we can find a solution for it and that the communities are working on a solution. And our members were more positive about the future of Southern Africa than about the future of America or Europe. (laughs) They were more pessimistic (laughs) about the future of Europe and America than about the region of Southern Africa or South Africa. That's amazing. But like I said, not the state entity or the government, but rather the resilient communities within Mm -hmm. it. And this may be a little bit outside of your expertise, but I look at the situation there and I think, what do the people who are supporting the ANC, who vote for the ANC, what are they thinking? Because I last looked at the numbers in terms of, of wealth for black South Africans, especially income levels, like nothing's changed. If anything, things have gotten worse for them. Do you know what they're thinking or is that is that not something you can speak to? I'm into someone's mind, but if I were to speculate, I think they see a, a party that's miserably failed. They see a party that has no redeeming story of, well, we've at least we've achieved this. They've got no at least. Everything is, is just getting worse. Everything's falling apart and it's under their watch. So just for context, if people are unaware, I realized the other day some people are unaware. South Africa has had a one-party state since 1994. We've not had another political party in charge for the last 30 years. So that that gets you to the question of, yes, absolutely. The policies enacted during the apartheid era in South Africa still have effects on society today. But the real, real question that needs to be addressed and every, so many people are too scared to go there because then they're going to find a lot of uncomfortable realities about the present. And that question is, where does the legacy of apartheid end and where does the legacy of the ANC begin? I think after 30 years in charge, you have quite a legacy. Apartheid was, no, I'm not, my math is not amazing, but apartheid was about 42 years between 1948 and 1990. We had our elections in 1994, but the system was already pretty much falling apart and coming apart by 1990, even much earlier, but let's take 1990. Mm-hmm. As 42 years of the apartheid regime. The ANC has been in charge for 30 years, so they're well on their way if they if they continue on this trajectory to have ruled South Africa for a similar, if not longer time. Mm-hmm then the national party the and the apartheid regime. And then, like I said, you have to be either very ignorant or incredibly malicious in regards to your, your narrative if you say, well, that 30 years in charge, we can't take that into account. That's not a factor. The only real factor is the 42 years that came before it or the 42 years of apartheid in the previous century. And then you have incredibly dishonest political pundits and politicians in South Africa to talk about 350 years of oppression as if the tiny little 
output, the tiny little trade post of 50 Dutch sailors that started at the southern tip of Africa in 1652, dominated and tyrannized in a region almost at the size of Europe. I mean, that's quite the white supremacist theory. I don't think that much about the Dutch and their abilities. Uh, but if if some people want to believe that, that 50 Dutchmen can conquer and enslave and pretty much dominate an entire region like Southern Africa, don't blame me if I laugh like straight in your face. Yeah, that you should do. I was just thinking of a, a contemporary situation in El Salvador where President Bukele in, in five years turned the country from having the number one murder rate on the continent, one of the highest in the world, to one that was safer than most U.S. cities in just five years with, with you know, effectively having absolute power. So if a government is in power for 30 years with absolute power, it can have no excuses. That's, that's simply absurd. Mm. I mean, in many other countries, probably was included, I don't know, New Zealand political history, but you have a, a shifting of political parties. You haven't, haven't had the same political party for decades. And I mean, the, the political parties that say, well, I've, I've only been in charge for two terms, for example, their excuse would not fly in your country. So why would the, the excuse of I've only had 30 years fly in, mm -hmm. in, in any other country? Uh, that's right. We did have the previous government here, Labour government, complain about nine years of neglect. I said nine years of neglect. And after the six years in power, they were still talking about the nine years of neglect of the previous government. Well, that didn't, right. uh, the, the voters didn't accept that. They got kicked out. Yeah. Yeah. See, that, but that's not the standard in South Africa. The, well, for some people in South Africa, the standard is we need, uh, we need another 30, at least, if not hundreds of years to, to make any real change. Well, that's not the case if you look at many other countries that have been able to re reverse their fate, if you want to put it that way, or to reverse their prospects within a much less time or a similar time. So no, it's South Africa is the story of two developments. On the one side, South Africa is a story of the South Africa is a story of, of, of state decay. What happens when a state just becomes less and less able to do the responsibilities that it has hoarded over decades, over centuries even. I mean, this, this didn't start in 1994. This, this started over 100 years ago, this centralization project of centralizing more power and more power in the hands of the state in South Africa. The other story that South Africa tells you is what happens in the void. What happens as a reaction to that state decay? And the reaction is communities start organizing and they start building, they're creating their own reality. And I mean, that's, like I said earlier, that's the business that AfriForum and Solidarity and all the other Solidarity Movement organizations are in. I call it the solutions industry. And that's also what my documentary, Self-Esteem, was about, is specifically here's what happens or what, here's the reaction to state decay. People don't just accept it. People don't just sit back and say, well, nothing we can do about it. We're just going to have to accept a lower and lower standard of living. And that's just reality. I'm like, no, I'm going to do something about at these, uh, even if I have to volunteer at these uh, community-based organizations. That's what people are willing to do. And the communities that are willing to do that, to go the extra mile, to pay the extra fee, mm -hmm. to volunteer the extra time and not sit back and cry and complain and whine, those communities are the communities of the future. They're going to survive. And then after they survive, they're going to thrive. And those that are sitting back using all their energy to complain about how unfair it is, 
those communities. I'm sorry, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. I believe your documentary "Self Bestuer" translates roughly to self governance. If self governance, it's, it's some it's a hybrid between self governance and self management. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very good. I'm. My Dutch is good, but obviously Afrikaans is a slightly different language. So I'm glad I got close. And what else could people do if they wanted to follow you and follow your work? How would you direct them? When when it comes to my work, I think my organization's work is a lot more important. So I'll I'll give you their platforms first. So if you live in New Zealand or anywhere abroad and you want to support what we do, you can become a friend of Afri Forum. So you just go to the website Friends of Afri Forum. You can just Google that and you can become a don you can donate to our state proof projects and our state proof pioneer work here in South Africa. And if you're a Afrikaner diaspora living out there, especially in New Zealand, and you're listening to this, you can go to uh, Afriforum Wereldwijd, the uh, Afriforum Worldwide, and then slot into our network of the Afrikaner diaspora. We, it's a critical part of our mission as well, is that a lot of Afrikaners out there still have a big role to play, and a lot of them already play a big role in supporting initiatives back home in South Africa, and we appreciate it very much. And like I said, if you want to get involved, go to Afrifurum Wereldwijd if you're an Afrikaner living out there uh, abroad. My own work, I'm not anonymous, but I do like the the thin layer of privacy it gives me if I post under a, a pseudo-anonymous account is a conscious caracal, and you can find me on, on X and on YouTube. On X, I just uh, analyze the South African politics and culture and give you updates on what's happening here, especially when, there's, uh, when it's world news. And on my YouTube channel, I, I interview interesting guests and talk to them about their, their fields of interest and specifically how they're contributing to solutions for the future, not just diagnosing problems. Well, thank you very much. And to the listeners, we've interviewed Ernst von Zeil here from Public Relations at AfriForum. And thank you for your time, Ernst. Yeah, bye, And everyone else, we will be back right after this break. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.